Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey there, internet, and welcome back to another episode of Wholehearted Eating. On today's episode, we are talking all about intersectional food policy, honoring your cultural foods, and plant-based gut health nutrition with Aiten Salahi. Aiten is a GI-specialized registered dietitian nutritionist, a culinary nutritionist, and an intersectional food policy advocate. In today's episode, we're chatting about honoring your cultural foods for health, sustainability, and how we can make gut health nutrition from a plant-based approach be as neutral as possible instead of disordered, which it really can tend to be, especially in the gut health world. So we're also going to be talking about the mental and emotional side of gut health and how you can actually induce digestive symptoms by telling yourself that eating something is going to cause you to feel bad, even if you don't have a biochemical sensitivity or an intolerance to something. All right, friends, let's dig in. You wear a lot of hats, right? As like many of us do in this profession. Um, But so for people who don't know you, tell us a little more about you and your philosophy around nutrition and how that blends with intersectional food policy. Sure. So I think a lot about Um, me and the human that I am in the nutrition world stems from my cultural upbringing. So my family is from a very small island in the Mediterranean called Cyprus. But what a lot of people don't know is that the island is actually divided technically into two countries, North Cyprus and South Cyprus. So my family is from the Turkish side, North Cyprus. Um, And there have been like decades of political turmoil and war on this island, essentially to the point that the north half of the island is not even recognized internationally as a country. Um, So they're barred from international trade. There's an international trade embargo, except for with Turkey. Um, uh, My parents were uh, political refugees during a war in the 70s. Um, my dad was a prisoner of war and my grandparents were prisoners of war. And so I come from this perspective of knowing, um, just a really complicated cultural perspective. Right. And like when people think Mediterranean, they think like, you know, (laughs) something very different from that. Right. And, and also like this concept of the Mediterranean diet being this very like European, very whatever diet. When I think of my cultural foods, I think about actually it's a much more like Middle Eastern diet, much more resembling like Persian food, Egyptian food. Um, And so like I come from this perspective where nutrition is really not all that it seems in the US, like the Western perspective of nutrition is not exactly one that resonates with me. And so cultural food and representation in the nutrition field has always been very important to me. Um, And at the same time, recognizing and and knowing my family's history, where after the war, there was actually a lot of crosstalk between the north and south side of the island, where they were sharing food as a way to heal from this period of 
um, unrest and unsafety and whatever. And food was this tool for unity on the island. Um, I just grew up feeling as though and knowing that food was this vehicle for cultural exchange and unity and peace. Um, so that's like the underpinning of everything it is that I do. But um, more recently, I guess I should say I was a career changer. I actually started off as a researcher. Um, I started in a neuropharmacology lab at Duke University when I was an undergrad. And I was studying um, the neurochemical changes, like mind-gut mediated neurochemical changes that occur as a result of taking depression medication. So MDD medications, which was super fascinating. But I was like, I really don't want to do this kind of research. I mean, the topic is cool, but I don't really want to be in this like lab setting forever. So um, after I graduated, I went on to study clinical research and I worked on an international portfolio for an artificial pancreas study for patients with type 1 diabetes when I was living in Los Angeles. Wow, this is a long story. <laughs> is it okay? Do you, do you want me to? Okay. Um, and during that time that I was working in clinical research, I was there for about five years, I was learning a lot more about the role of food in health and preventative health and specifically in the context of diabetes management. But that was really the door that opened me up to learning about other local food efforts. So I started getting involved in the Los Angeles Food Policy Council. They had just started an urban agriculture working group and I was like kind of curious about that. And I started volunteering with this group called Food Forward and they did like local fruit gleaning programs where you go and pick fruit trees from people's yards who they don't want to pick it and then divert those to like a food bank or something like that. So I, long story short, I kind of just realized there that food was really where I wanted to be and not just one angle of food, but everything about it from like how it's grown to how it's prepared, like cooking, the culinary aspects, to the like health benefits, um, to like the policy implications and food access. So after five years in clinical research, I uprooted, I moved to Boston. Um, I did my master's in food policy and applied nutrition at Tufts. I did my DPD at Simmons. And then I went on to complete my dietetic internship at Mass General where I specialized in uh, medical nutrition for GI conditions. So there's a lot um, there, but part of why I'm so passionate about food access is that I actually was a SNAP beneficiary for several years. Um, and so accessible food and not just any food, but nourishing, nutritious, culturally relevant foods, it's really important to me. Um, and that's kind of where I am today. I now run a private practice where we talk about a lot of those things and a grassroots organization with other food and nutrition professionals of all um, you know, varieties where we discuss how intersectional all of these issues are. So <laughs> word bomb, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that because it's so, it's so important, right? None of us are just like one thing, right? Especially when a lot of people who come to the nutrition field, especially if you come from a master's degree in it, right? Or a second bachelor's degree in it is like, you're never just one thing, right? So like wherever you started from, you're bringing, including your upbringing, but all of your, the different ways that you've been educated through your whole life are really going to inform your perspective and what you want to specialize in and what you want to work in. But you never just have to wear one hat. 
you know. Mm-hmm. But I do want to start there. So one of the uh, recent things that you posted that I love is um, how <laughs> things we're going to leave in 2021 or never do again in 2022, right? Like whitewashing your food in 2022 is not going to make it any more nutritious, right? Like, and you always an, are an advocate advocate for enjoying your cultural foods with pride. So let's talk a little bit more about that, right? Like what, I don't want to say what is the problem with this, like we know, right? But what are the biggest problems with this, right? But especially I want you to go into a little bit more about like what people think, you know, the gold standard of the Mediterranean diet is, how that is whitewashed and what we can do to take back our cultural foods and especially from like the non-diet perspective, how to honor our cultural foods and not feel shame around eating them. Absolutely. Sure. So obviously, like given my background, the first thing that comes to mind to me is there is a major issue in the way that knowledge is generated on the topic of what is the healthiest diet. So if you think about it, there really is no one definition for what is the healthiest diet. And if you go even deeper, what does healthy really mean? Does it mean like, like behaviorally healthy? Does it mean, you know, biologically the healthiest? It depends on your pre-existing condition, what, whatever. There's so many ways that you can break this down, right? But when you look at how research is generated, a lot of it is generated from the lens of like the white Eurocentric perspective. So let's look at like my plate, for example. And of course, like there is this problem of, sure, my plate is a tool for people that are just like familiarizing now with it. My plate is a tool that we use um, in the US. It is, I think a USDA tool that helps us to educate folks on how you should compose your plate. And it's like 50% leafy greens and vegetables and a quarter protein and a quarter starch or something like that. But most cultures around the world don't split up their plates like that. And the U.S., even though this is a U.S. generated tool, is a very, it's not a homogenous place, right? There are people from all over the world that come to the U.S. that look at that tool and they're like, this is not relevant to me in the way that I eat in my household. And so it's not actually helping me. So that's one example of a way that we're not necessarily taught to eat our cultural foods <laughs> as they were meant to be eaten. And we're trained to sort of break it out into like, you must eat this kale with lemon juice on it and this bland <laughs> piece of chicken and like mashed potatoes. And that's, you know, your plate of food. So there need to be some adjustments, not only in the way that we're generating the research around what nutritious food looks like, but how we're talking about it and how we're educating about it so that when we're presenting educational materials to our patients, they don't feel like I have to change the whole way that I eat at home. Um, And then another way that that has played out is not even just like individual representation of my plate, but also like, I'm, I'm sure you've been in clinics where they hand out plates where the plate is already divided into those things. And it tells you what you should eat and like what should go into different parts of your plate. Another layer of this problem kind of presenting itself. So nutritious food does not look one way. Um, And we need to, even though we want to make sure that the materials that we're providing to our patients are simple and understandable, we need to become more sophisticated in the way that we provide those educational materials so that they are not so exclusionary to the many people whose plates don't look like that. Agreed. 
100%. And it's it's really tough, you know, because we were talking about like representing where you come from and everything like that. 96 to 7, 8, 9% of the people in dietetics look like me, right? Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like, I totally understand where you're coming from. And the um, I think where a lot of people who look like me who are dietitians get caught up and there's like, well, what am I supposed to do? It's like, no, no, no. That doesn't mean you can't get educated. That doesn't mean you can't educate your patients. But what you have to realize is like, if someone who is coming from a background that is not yours isn't resonating with the advice that they're giving them, you have to swallow your pride and be like, well, maybe it would be better if you worked with a black dietitian or Latina yeah. dietitian or whatever, or somebody who comes from your background. But then there's this kind of reinforcing problem of a vicious circle of there aren't a lot of people who, you know, don't look like me that are in the field of dietetics. So yeah. Can I rant on that for just a oh, second? Yeah. Because you're absolutely right. And that is a huge problem. And in my opinion, there has to be a lot more done to make it easier for people of other from other um, cultural groups to get into the nutrition field and mm -hmm. not just with a weekend nutrition certification, but actually to become a registered dietitian. Like it should be top priority, in my opinion, for the academy to create those scholarship opportunities not only to get into the field, but to also advocate for fair pay after people become registered dietitians. Because a lot of the reason why um, people from my background and other diverse cultural backgrounds are not going into the dietetics field is because the, the pay on the other side of all of that debt and education and intensive training that you go to tends to not look so good. So to the companies and the businesses and the organizations that actually prioritize fairly paying their dietitians, good on you because you are actually doing something to make it a more diverse and accessible field, in my opinion. Yes, 100% agreed. So I want to transition to another topic that wears a lot of hats, right? So I want to talk about digestion and chronic dieting, right? We talk about this a lot on this podcast, but it is so awesome to have somebody else on who also <laughs> specializes in this so we can like, yeah. you know, follow you back and forth. So I want to start off with like a very, you know, clickbaity thing of, in your opinion, why is it so incredibly necessary to work on healing from digestive issues and healing from chronic dieting simultaneously instead of one at a time sure well i'll start off just by saying and i'm sure that like i'd love to hear your experience with this as well i i have not yet worked with one single person in any of my hats or arenas <laughs> who had a digestive issue that didn't also struggle with some kind of disordered eating or just confusion around what to eat or history of chronic dieting. Would you agree with that? 100%. <laughs> These issues go so, so hand in hand. And because they are not separable from each other, we can't really deal with them separately, in my opinion. I mean, it, I think there are cases where you have to prioritize what comes first, right? So if a person is struggling with a severe eating disorder, then they need to be working with an eating disorder dietitian who is very like very specialized in that because it is a life-threatening issue so work on that first if it's depending on the degree of severity but if you're somebody who is you know in remission or you're struggling with disordered eating or a history of chronic dieting and you just want to know like what does it really feel like to feel my best and to like <laughs> trust 
my body and my the way that I interface with food, right? So to me, those things can absolutely go go hand in hand, not just because of the mind-gut connection and because there is a, a what's it, like a simultaneous relationship happening between what we eat and the way that we feel. Quick caveat on that, food is not a substitute for antidepressant medication or any, you know, like I just, it drives me nuts. Like that's, take your medications and don't, don't feel any shame around that. Don't let anybody make you feel shame around that. Okay caveat done. Um, but one of the issues that I see a lot in patients who have, um, a history of chronic dieting and GI issues. And this was, this was actually me. I didn't know that I was falling into the chronic dieting bucket, but before I actually figured out what was going on with my GI issues and what my triggers were, I was looking in all the wrong places to get help on it. And it was leading me down these crazy paths where I was scared to eat like anything. So it was like, cut out gluten, cut out dairy, like have cacao instead of cocoa, like all these like wild things. Um, you know, you like print out those lists online of like foods to avoid and foods to eat. And they're all totally different and they're all based in who knows what. <laughs> so when you actually take the step to like approach to start your approach to improving your GI symptoms from the lens that like all foods or most foods will have a place in your diet. All foods can be nourishing. Um, there are no such thing as good and bad foods. You're starting from a place where the relationship, your relationship with food is already healthier than it would have been. If you started from a place that says these foods are bad, don't eat them. These foods are good, only eat them. You know what I mean? <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, at that point, we're square one, we are activating the stress response and the gut brain connection and the vagus nerve and everything that goes with that. So it's like, huh, I wonder which came first, the GI issues or the disordered eating? Huh, I wonder right. which came first, the stress around food or the GI issues, right? Or both, yeah. because the other really complicating piece of this like intersection of digestive issues, healing from chronic dieting and the nervous system is like, it can be all three of them. And mm -hmm. it could have started at one leading to the others, or it could have started at two, which then leaves us in this vicious cycle. But yeah. going back to what you were saying of like, you know, you were looking in all of the wrong places. Um, for anybody who is currently there, who has been there before, I have also been there. And we just want to say that like, of course you're looking in all the wrong places because even if you start a conventional medicine and you're like, okay, I'm having all these gut issues. And they're like, huh, here's these antibiotics. And then they're like, oh no, you don't need to look at what you're eating. Or like, maybe if you have like a little bit of a woke doctor, they'd be like, oh, maybe cut out gluten or like, oh, maybe cut out sugar. But it's like, eh, is that actually going to get to the root of problem? No. <laughs> right. So then yeah. you go to functional medicine and they're like, oh, well, here's this slew of elimination diets and all of these supplements and everything. And so of course, then you start to absorb like a sponge oh food can fix my symptoms so then I should be cutting out all of the possible foods that could be causing symptoms so then you end up in the place that you are saying where it's like oh my gosh well you know there's this one and there's this one and there's this one so you know what I'm gonna do is I don't know which one to do so I'm just gonna combine them all and then you're left eating like four foods and now mm -hmm. our gut bacteria don't have any food and now we're depressed even more than we were before because our neurotransmitters are not being fed and it's just a whole storm of 
at that point, it doesn't even matter which one came first, but they're all existing at the same time. And just you're hungry, you're tired, your digestion is worse than it was before. And you're just like left with more questions than you have answers. I don't know if you actually meant to do this, but you did kind of just describe my progression and a lot of people's progressions like through that path. Cause I actually did like, I'm a very, uh, I'm a very like science oriented, research oriented person because I just love that stuff. And I know you are too. And so I like started off being like, I'm going to go to this great medical center. I'm going to work with a doctor. They're going to help me. I went multiple times, um, with the issues that I was struggling with and <laughs> like the three times that I went to try to get help from this place, I was essentially told like, you're fine to go home or, uh, like it's all in your head or, you know, like I was just gaslit, like medical gaslighting is like a real thing. And so I got no help. And I was like, wow, I guess I need to figure this out by myself. And not all doctors are like that. Obviously I hate that. I have to say not all doctors, but like, you know, there's <laughs> really, like there are really good practitioners out there. I just did not, um, end up being so lucky to like find one, unfortunately, in the start. So then I did go to a functional medicine provider and I was so confused <laughs> by like what was laying out in front of me because it was essentially like, well, you're going to go on this intense elimination diet that makes no sense to me. And here are like 18 supplements and powders that you should have instead of foods. And I was like, no, <laughs> like <laughs> off of that, like that's not going to work. I love food. I love to cook. I don't think this, this does not make sense to me. And that was actually... It was, it was around that point that I was like, I'm going to become a dietitian. This is nonsense. I'm going to figure this out. Like it was, I mean, of course that with all of the other stuff that we talked about in the beginning of this podcast kind of culminated around the same time where I was like, I can't be the only one that's struggling with this level of confusion. And I just want relief. I want to be able to eat good food and feel good and digest and know that like the steps that I'm taking are evidence backed, but also feel right to me on like a cultural level and on a behavioral psychological level, you know? So that was probably part of your impetus to, to get into the field. But Oh yeah. And I think, you know, it's really interesting on my journey specifically. So I figured out that I had celiac disease and then the eating disorder was causing all of these other issues that went with the celiac. But of course you're like, oh, it's just the food, right? So you go down all of the different elimination diets. And then I was like, oh, I want to be a dietitian nutritionist so I can help people heal with food. And then you learn in school. It's like, here's all the elimination diets you can do to help people heal with food. And here's all the supplements. And then you get into that realm and you're like, but there's a huge piece that they're not teaching us about in school and you see in clinical practice, which is where the stress of a negative or complicated relationship with food, whether because of all these elimination diets or because you've been trying to change your appearance or body image or whatever it is, is an additional stress that is leaving you in chronic sympathetic activation, which is causing your gut symptoms to be worse. And so then it's like, wait a minute. So now we've arrived <laughs> at the intersection of your relationship with food and your clinical symptoms, and that can't go away with just using elimination diets and supplements, which is probably how both of us came to be in this niche. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. You're so spot on. And what is really like something that I like to impress upon people, and I see that you do this too, is that you can actually induce digestive symptoms by telling yourself that eating something 
that you may or may not have an intolerance to is going to cause you to have that symptom, which is so wild to me, but it is true. Like, let's say that you don't have a chemical, you know, sensitivity to something or like a biochemical intolerance to something. If I tell myself bread makes me feel really bad, I'm going to actually feel really bad when I eat bread. So this is actually where, and I'm so curious to hear your thoughts on this too. This is where I do think that elimination, modified elimination diets and food challenges are really vital, not because we're removing things and keeping them out, but because we are selectively removing things that are either part of your food rules that you've decided on or have you even exposed to whatever, or things that we associate or see or associated with your digestive symptoms. And then we're systematically reintroducing them in a certain portion to see what really happens objectively with an open mind after we've done the work of looking to see like, uh, like what your relationship with food is and how you're, what you're telling yourself about certain foods and presenting new evidence and changing the, those associations. Um, so I, I personally think that elimination diets when done with a trained professional can be modified. That's so important. The modification piece is so important to me. If you throw a list of don't eat this and do eat this at somebody, I think it's lazy. <laughs> um, we were just chatting briefly about, but if you actually do the work to understand the, the, the relationship that that person has with food, what potential triggers might be, not just food triggers, by the way, like things outside of food, and then systematically challenging those things, 10 times out of 10, I'm, people are walking away eating so much more than they thought that they could before because they have seen to believe, like, actually, when I eat dairy, I'm fine. And like, oh, I did have like a celiac test and I eat bread and I feel okay. You know, like I might, whatever, if their test was negative, obviously. But <laughs> yeah. what do you think about that? So what do you think about the role of elimination diets in all of this? Because it is sticky and I do not think I, uh, one more thing should absolutely only work with a professional on this. Like do not embark on an elimination diet by yourself. I've done it. You probably did it. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. So work with a professional. Tell me your thoughts. Yes. No, I'm, I'm on the same track because here's the thing, right. Is like, we can acknowledge that when people do an elimination diet, a lot of the time their symptoms do get better, but how much of that is because you're actually eliminating those foods that you're sensitive to, quote unquote, may or may not be sensitive mm -hmm. to them. And how much of it is that you don't have to stress over the foods that you think are giving you issues, right? Or the foods that you think are bad for you or the foods that you've been told are going to aggravate your condition, right? Mm -hmm. And it can be either or both. So I kind of approach it in the same ways. If I'm going to eliminate a food, I want to know why we're doing this, right? Do you think that you have gut symptoms every time that you have this food? Is this impeding your quality of life? Okay, then maybe we'll take out that food and we'll also work on the mindset piece around it at the same time. So then when we systematically reintroduce it, we can make sure that it's not your stress response or the you know morality around food or the stress around that that is inducing the symptoms instead of the food itself. Because I'm not gonna sit here yes. and say that 
people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity or people who are lactose intolerant or people who have random food sensitivities and they break out in hives every time they eat strawberries, I'm not saying that you need to eat that food. And I'm not saying that that food <laughs> has to fit in your all foods fit mentality, right? But at the yeah. same time, we want to make sure that even if those conditions are met, right? You do have hives around strawberries. You are lactose intolerant. I'm celiac. Maybe you have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. We still don't want to have this like morality stress complex or this fear complex around these foods at the same time, right? So mm -hmm. when I think of elimination, the first thing I think of is like, well, let's eliminate the negative relationship with food first, right? And then we yeah. see, are we, is it, <laughs> is it sustainable for you to take this food out. And what what's like the cost benefit analysis, right? For example, the person who gets hive, hives every time they eat strawberries. If you're truly listening to your body signals, your body's probably not gonna be telling you to eat strawberries, right? But if you do have that all or nothing, yes versus no relationship with food, and you think, oh my gosh, strawberries are so bad for me, I should never eat strawberries, your rebel lizard brain is like, ooh, but like I wanna eat them, you know? And this happens a lot with people with gut issues because they're like, oh, I yeah. shouldn't be eating these foods. But then anytime you tell yourself you shouldn't have something, you're like, ooh, but I wanna eat it. And then they binge on the foods that they know give them symptoms, and they're like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I feel like you have things to say, go. <laughs> Oh, I was just, I'm like nodding. Okay, so I know people can't see this, but I'm nodding so hard right now because the, the other piece of this is another chicken and egg thing, right? This is so much fun talking to you, by the way. But another piece of this is that, like, is, is the problem that you've told yourself that you can't have something or somebody has told you that you can't have something because it causes symptoms for most people, air quotes around all of that, whatever. And so when you do have it, you binge on it and then you feel bad because because of that because you've overeaten something so a lot of that I mean I see so much overlap between restriction binging GI issues and like teasing and disentangling all of those things is the work in my opinion and then of course like you have to have the clinical skill set to be able to say like you need to go in and get testing for xyz thing or refer out if you have a deeper concern but I mean, again, 10 times out of 10, some of the first things that clients talk about with me are like the relationship with food piece or the, the thing where they have like tried all these elimination diets and now they're scared to eat so many different foods. So they're already baseline anxious going in to sit down to enjoy a meal rather than feeling neutral about it or feeling like good about it or excited to eat their cultural foods. And that's the other part of it too, is that like, how much of an overlap is there around people being told that like, oh, you can't eat that, like that version of like the real version of your cultural food because it has too much salt in it or something, you know, something like that. And that leading to them having symptoms because there is this like societal guilt and shame around eating certain foods. So yeah, that's the work. It's complicated. But to me, first step is like getting a really in-depth understanding of where people see themselves on the spectrum of understanding their relationship with food and a lot of the time and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this also like i'm working with people who don't know what it feels like to feel hungry or what it feels like to feel full and so that is the starting point and like building mindfulness around like the connection to your body is is a really good starting place for people who are listening that want to know like where do i start with all this stuff like 
mindfulness around mealtimes. What does it feel like to be hungry? What is your experience of hunger? What's your experience of fullness? Do you not know right now? That's okay. Like approach it with curiosity and not with anxiety and fear and judgment. Just be like, I just want to get to know myself better right now. And my relationship with food and the way that I feel when I eat and come from that place of curiosity. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I feel like this is the space that will finally feel like home or catch a lot of people who are like, oh, I want to work on my relationship with food. So they go to like anti-diet or intuitive eating or whatever. But then they're like, well, wait a minute. I have all these gut issues like this whole like just eat whatever you want thing doesn't matter, which caveat, we know that's not what actual intuitive eating is, but that's what it seems like on social media, right? And then there's this other piece of, you know, when one of the principles is like honor your hunger, like just listen to your hunger and fullness cues. Okay, well, there's a big swath of people here for if, if they've had one, if they've had digestive issues for a long time, two, or and or if they've been dieting for a long time. They probably have very little, one, body trust, and two, like connection with those hunger and fullness signals. So if you Mm -hmm. say to somebody like, oh, well, you know, just eat when you're hungry and then your body will naturally regulate itself. Well, if you have severe digestive symptoms every time that you eat, I guarantee you that that approach is not going to work, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm totally here with you and I hear you on the like, you know, nutritional fear mongering which is basically what it is of like oh you shouldn't eat your cultural foods because they're not as healthy as these white people foods and you know like all this other stuff and it's just like have you ever thought that if people ate in alignment with their cultural foods biologically their bodies know how to break that down better than these foods that you haven't been eating for generations Mm mm-hmm I'm going to just share a story because I I just heard this um, story yesterday and I think it's a perfect example of what it is that we're talking about. So um, part of what I do is I I run this organization called the Planetary Health Collective. And what we want to do is kind of elevate these diverse perspectives at the intersection of nutrition, sustainability, and food waste, like cultural foods. So yesterday I was speaking to a woman who is a public health dietitian that works on a Navajo reservation in Arizona. And she was telling me that she um, had an appointment with one of the elders like on, on her reservation. And the elder was telling her, like, I just had an appointment with my doctor and my doctor, who's a, who is a white man who does not live on the reservation, um, told, <laughs> instead of talking about anything else, told this elder on the reservation that you have to stop eating one of these, uh, like, sacred foods, which is a particular type of corn that they grow, that he grows, he grows in his, in his yard on the reservation. And it is like a like utmost cultural significance and it's a source of carbohydrates and nutrients and the same phytochemicals that are in blueberries. But this doctor coming from, I know you're rolling your eyes. I like my head almost exploded when I heard this story, but I bring this up because this happens all the time in many different ways. So what was a really fortunate situation for that elder was that he was able to work with a dietitian that comes from his community that was able to say, actually, that's misinformed. Here are some other ways we can go about solving your whatever medical nutrition challenge you have while still incorporating 
cultural, your significant cultural foods, your food ways and your heritage into your lifestyle. And that I think ha happens a lot, not only in the medical sphere, but specifically in the GI world where it's like, oh, okay, so let's just start plucking things out that may have some significance to you. And it doesn't even need to be like that, like a, that level of significance. It can just be something that like, I grew up eating this food and this food has a lot of like really beautiful memories for me. And I don't want to have to eliminate it. Like, can you help me figure out what's going on? Because I don't know if it's this food. And I get those kinds of questions from clients a lot as well. So just elevating that this is a thing that happens a lot. And I think dietitians see the other side of it a lot. <laughs> we're, we're the ones that kind of catch it when it happens. But what's your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And when when you're thinking, I mean, again, going back to the like just giving out elimination diets as lazy, that kind of practice of exactly what happened to that person is lazy because it's it's, you know, and I don't want to say like doctors have unlimited amounts of time to do, you know, more continuing education and that kind of, of stuff. But at the same time, if this is a people that you're going to be serving on a consistent basis, maybe we should do a little bit more learning around that, right? Instead of just saying, well, here's the American Heart Association's recommendations, which like might have had good intentions, debatably, <laughs> you know, look at who they're <laughs> sponsored by, but like, oh. Well, okay. So that's, that brings me back to the original point where there's an issue around the way that the research is generated because it's generated from the lens of like the white American Eurocentric lens. So if we were actually like, let's say it just, it just tells me that there were no indigenous people in the room or oh. there were no people of color in the room who were discussing, you know what I mean? This when isn't a question. This is a fact. <laughs> exactly. So that's what it communicates when you get nutrition guidelines that are non-representative or not even attempting to be representative of different ways of eating and cultural foods. It's, it is representative of the problem that there were not people of other perspectives in the room or on that research team helping to generate the questions from and, and find the answers from start to finish. Yes. So the end result is this example that we just discussed of, you know, one example where there's a Navajo elder on the reservation when and a person not from their community trying to pluck out cultural food it's such a problem so sorry side tangent felt important <laughs> why would you ever be sorry about that <laughs> i just i rant <laughs> no i like that because i mean that this is one of the reasons why we are in this field right because we are passionate about things like the last thing that you want to happen is you have no passion for your field anymore right because that's when you stop doing research and that's when you stop learning and that's when you stop being able to help people as best you can mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely drop the yeah. mic and leave <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but so another thing that i wanted to ask you about you know looking more into the area of really like honoring what your body wants and what your body needs whether it's based on cultural foods or personal preferences or like ethical preferences or anything like you also have a pretty unique perspective in the gut health world let alone coming from the non-diet world but you do mostly plant forward or like plant-based gut health right which in a lot of the things that you learn about gut health is like, oh, well, make sure you're eating, you know, more meat and make sure you're eating more fish because vegetables and beans and like plant-based proteins aren't as easily digestible, especially if you have digestive issues, right? So mm -hmm. for the people who are not familiar with like what 
your definition of plant-based is, right? Because I love how you clarify this in everything that you do. What does it mean and what does it not mean, especially as it comes to gut health? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for bringing this up because one of the other reasons that I chose to incorporate this plant-based definition into what it is that I do in gut health and anti-diet is that there is even more overlap with disordered eating in like the plant-based community. And a lot of people go into it because maybe their doctor told them they need to do that to lose weight or they're doing it for body modification reasons, which, you know, whatever your, whatever your reason is. And if, if body comp changes are a goal for you, that's fine. That's your prerogative. I don't police people on that kind of stuff. But what I do want to understand is why plant-based And are you, do you feel like your relationship with plant-based is healthy? And the way that I define plant-based is the way that I learned about plant-based when I was learning more about environmentally sustainable eating, which is, which is simply this, mostly plants, lots of different kinds, that's it. And so my whole like ethos around eating is that less, is just less rules. So if you are going into like veganism because it's for the animals, for example, and you want to be real strict about that, and that brings you joy and happiness and fulfillment, that is great. But if you want to just eat more plants because it's more sustainable and because it's what your body needs and whatever you've been learning about it and you're curious about that lifestyle, that's great too. And so I'm helping those people try to understand that we don't need to apply more food rules. You can be a mostly plants eater. You can be a flexitarian. You can be pescatarian. You could just not even have a title to the way that you're eating, but just be trying to eat more plants and call yourself plant-based. And I think that that's beautiful. And I, I struggle with, um, gatekeeping around the definition of plant-based because that to me is a problem. It's another thing that where you're just, why would you not encourage somebody to explore eating more plants, not just for health benefits, but for like the environmental impact of it as well. So that's kind of how I approach plant-based. And from the GI side of things, I do get a lot of people who are like, I really wanted to go vegan or I tried being vegan and I had so many GI issues that I had to stop. And so I help those people as well, trying to figure out exactly what it is And it's usually not like, oh, I eat this thing and it really messes me up. It's usually something else. It's usually fiber balance or movement or stress or like inadequate like macronutrient balance during meals without actually worrying about the numbers. We don't worry about the numbers. In all of my journals with my clients, I remove the numbers. So I don't want them thinking about that kind of stuff. I want the focus to be the feeling. Um, So... Yeah, plant-based is a really interesting space in GI. There are very, very strong opinions (laughs) about not being plant-based if you have GI issues, but there, the opposite exists as well. And so I think finding, creating a welcoming, safe, and open space where we can explore your relationship with plant-based eating while addressing your gut symptoms, that's kind of been, that's kind of been my goal with all of it. I love that. And, you know, especially the point about like creating the like welcoming, safe space for whoever wants to be here. Because again, I think the anti-diet intuitive eating movement can feel very exclusionary to anybody who checks 
any of these boxes, right? Especially yeah. if you're at the, you know, and this is this is where it gets really hard, right? Because like every single thing that you said, there's going to be somebody who's like, but for this, you shouldn't be doing that, right? So yeah. if we take the cultural foods example, oh, if you want to be healthy, you shouldn't be eating your cultural foods. Let's use the, you know, conventional examples here. Like, oh, if you have gut issues, then you can't eat everything, right? Oh, if you have gut issues, you shouldn't be eating plant-based. Oh, if you care about animals, you shouldn't be eating meat. But wait, I have gut issues. What am I supposed to do? You know, there's just like, there's so many things. So I love this environment that you're creating, especially because you lead from an evidence-based approach, right? And we're also doing this from a very conscious perspective of a lot of people who do come to both the gut health world, the dieting world, and the plant-based world are all coming for a lot of very complicated reasons, right? And so we as clinicians have to be willing to do the work and dig into, okay, I hear you that you want to fill in the blank, whatever it is, right? Tell me more about that, right? Like, why did you get into this in the first place, right? Like, what are your driving values? Because the the only way that we can mesh all of these things together is to dig into, okay, what are people really looking for at the end of the day, you know? And, and I do this with clients when they talk about weight loss as well, because I'm the same way. I don't do numbers. I don't do calorie counting. I don't do macros. I don't give out weight loss plans, right? But at the same time, I'm not going to turn somebody away if one of their goals is weight loss, because I understand that that's not really the thing that they want. There's probably seven layers under that. And there are many things that we can work on to help with, for example, if they want to be healthier, right? They think as dietitians, people come to us and they're like, I want to lose weight. And it's like, okay, what else do you want? You know, yeah. because they <laughs> think that they them coming to a dietitian saying I want to lose weight equals I want to be healthier I want to fit in my clothes better I want to have a more confident body image I want to eat you know whatever all of the things so it can be really complicated then that then that goes back into like we can't be lazy as clinicians (laughs) right you know we need to do the work we need to meet our people where they are figure out where they're coming from and then figure out how we can serve them best based on what they need the most and what they need the most is what they're telling you plus your clinical experience and all of the research and everything absolutely I mean and and just to like complete the picture for everybody. I think like the point that we're getting at here is that this particular intersection that we work in is just rife with emotional landmines. Like there are people who have very strong opinions on what you should and shouldn't do. But like our goal as clinicians is to understand the the person that comes to us with health for with a need for health is probably feeling a lot of emotional and psychological strife about whatever it is that they're struggling with. And they're looking for a safe space where they can ask questions and explore their own unique body and their relationship with food free from judgment, but with like evidence-driven and trustworthy help to get them the relief that they want. And so I think that's like the crux of what it is that we're trying to provide to people is that safe environment that kind of like quiets down all the noise of all the other stuff that you see on the internet. Cause there are some loud opinions, some of them good, some of them not good, but good and not good depends on your individual perspective. Right. And like what your body needs. So we kind of quiet down that noise and bring it back to you ground you into your body and help you to become your own source of change and relief 
with, you know, a trusted perspective by your side. I think that that's what it comes down to. And in this intersection with GI issues, which are very personal, improving relationship with food and anti-diet, very personal and plant-based, which can also be like of societal significance and people with a lot of climate anxiety come in to this space and they're like, I am just totally overwhelmed. What, where do I start? So that's kind of why I picked this really complicated <laughs> intersection because the people who need it really, really need it. Yeah, need I that. love that. And I'm happy that you are occupying that space because like somebody's got to, right? Like it can't be me because I don't come from a culture and diverse background, right? Like I can learn about it and talk about it all that I want, but you can only relate to someone on so many levels if they don't have a lot of common background with you, you know? So thank you for being here. <laughs> oh yes, thank you. Appreciate, appreciate you having me on. I really do appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like we could go in like 68 different directions over the next like four hours. It was so funny when you were talking, I was getting this visual of like the roundabout at the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, which is like eight different directions of cars are coming into this like one circle. <laughs> yeah. But it was really giving this this visual of like, okay, I want to be plant-based, but I also have gut issues. And what about my cultural foods? And then what about my, you know, all of these things? It's just, it makes a lot of sense why people are so confused about what to do and yeah. why our nervous systems are like on fire all the time. And this doesn't even talk about like the fact that we're living in a global pandemic and people have jobs and people are worried about money and food security and all of these other things, right? Like it makes sense. Or climate disaster. <laughs> or climate disaster makes sense why we're all feel like we're on fire all the time. So yeah, here yeah we are. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All the more reason for people like you and me to create this quiet space where we can just like ground back in and come up with a plan and follow the plan. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want to run over our time. So please tell everybody all of the places that they can find you. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, well, first, I just want to thank you for having me on. And this was so much fun. And I would love to talk about this stuff with you literally forever. So you're welcome we to come on anytime that you want. <laughs> we can do this whenever you want. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at a-Y-S-A, Isa dot nutrition. And you can find me on my website at www.isanutrition.com. Um, if you are a food or nutrition professional involved in, I don't know, cooking, policy, ag, you're a dietitian, any aspect of the food and nutrition industry, or you just love food, you can also um, volunteer with the Planetary Health Collective by going to www.planetaryhealthcollective.org. I meet one-on-one -on -one with every single person who emails the group um, that wants to volunteer with us so that I can see what your unique gifts and talents are and the ways that you want to contribute to the climate fight. Um, so I'd be happy to meet with you there. And you can also find us on Facebook at the Planetary Health Collective. If you just search us, our group will pop up and we're happy to connect with you there as well. So awesome. Thanks. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs>
This helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies with wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me or Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling or checking out our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. And we'll see you again here next week.